here in person or on the live stream. I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. You're looking at verses 6 through 12. These are verses that are often used during pledge drives and tithing drives to talk about money. And they do talk about money, and I'm not going to be afraid to address that. Jesus addressed it. Scriptures address it. We can look at it. But we will miss the greater point if we think this passage is just about money. The prophet declares to us in these verses that God is at work in repentance. Let's turn our attention then to Malachi chapter 3. This is God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is God's word. Let's pray that he would teach us this morning. Heavenly Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand and believe what you would have us know this morning. That we would not be a people who respond to you with cynical hearts. That we would return to you. And in so doing, know that you are a God who works in repentance. Do this for the glory of Christ, that all the nations may see how you overflow with blessing to those who come to you in faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Martin Luther, in the first of his 95 theses, wrote this, that when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And this is consistent with what not only the Lord Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 4, but with what all of Scripture teaches, and in particular with what Malachi is proclaiming to the people of Israel and to us in his ministry there to those who've returned 
from exile. And the teaching is this. God loves repentance. It is, a, it is to be a fruit, a constant fruit in the lives of his people. And our God, who is sovereign over all things, who orders the cosmos, who works miraculously in spaces that we cannot begin to comprehend, he loves to work in and through repentance. I wonder sometimes if we really understand what repentance really is. If we fully comprehend our need for it, if we would even have eyes to see what it would look like for us to live out lives that daily bear the fruit of repentance. The people of Israel, who should have known better, respond to the prophet with cynicism. How shall we return? What is this repentance of which you speak? And sometimes I'm afraid our own hearts may respond with that same cynicism to our Lord and God. And so we would do well to consider what repentance is, why we need it, and what it looks like in our lives. And in fact, those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. And so I would invite you to consider with me, what is repentance? If you were to boil it down to its essence, uh, how would you describe it? What would it look like? How would you know if it was real? All too often when we start to try and answer this question, we get it completely backwards. And we start talking about repentance first and foremost in terms of what we must do in order that. God, the church, whoever might do something else. We start in the wrong place. We start with us, with what we do, and we make repentance to be a thing defined by a system of rules and regulations. And in this, we miss it. I am the executor for my father-in-law's estate, Many of you have done this, and you know firsthand this is just a horrible, horrible, horrible system to navigate. Because nobody cares about your personal story. It it has nothing to do with you. You can come and say, look, this, like there's some unique things in the estate. We have to handle it this way. These were the, 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 the issues that we're dealing with. Can you help us with it? And nobody cares. I mean, they might even care, but they can't do anything about it. The bank has their rules, and you've got to follow the rules. The The social security system has their rules. You've got to follow the rules. The the probate court has the rules. You've got to follow the rules. It doesn't matter. The whole thing is about you figuring out how to navigate their system. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter the details of what you're about. It doesn't matter your personal story or history. Sad or glorious though it may be, what matters is can you figure out the system and follow it to get the things done you need done? And sometimes I think we treat repentance this way. What are the things God requires of us that I need to do in order to get the things from God that I need to get? The temptation is to read this whole passage in those terms. 
Return to me, then I'll return to you, says the Lord. Do these things, then I'll bless you, says the Lord. Repentance at its core, in its essence, is not primarily legal. It is personal. Which is to say, it's not first and foremost about you figuring out the system of rules. It is about you understanding who God is. What will happen if you return to Him? How do you think God will respond to you in your sin, in your rebellion? What is it that you think will happen? Why is it that you want a system of rules? It's so that we can know that when we finally get to the end, that we've got all the stuff we need. We've got the receipts. God is, is going to be okay with us. But the very point at which God challenges the people of Israel and challenges us is, you don't understand who I even am. I, the Lord, do not change, he said. And it's for that reason, it is for that reason that I, the Lord, do not change. It is for for the reason of who I am and the glory of my nature and character. I, the Lord, do not change. And it's for that reason that you aren't consumed. You can follow all the rules and the regulations. You can obey all the systems. You can check off all the boxes. And when you come to the Lord, you will find that you are still wanting. And if it depended upon you and your obedience and your perfection and your glory to gain a standing before Him, you would be consumed in the fire of His glory. But God says here to the people of Israel, I don't change. I have always been a merciful God. I have always abounded with kindness and forgiveness and grace to all who seek my face. That's why. That's why when you come to me, when you return to me, you're not consumed. Because of who I am. The basis of repentance. The essence of repentance. The most essential thing that you have to understand about repentance is repentance is a turning to a merciful and a gracious God who loves to receive repentant sinners. Who do you think the Lord really is? That's that's the essence of this, this question. Who do you think He really is? When you read the Scriptures, what God do you think you find revealed therein? For many, and maybe for you, It is a God who loves penance. 
God who loves to make you pay for the things that you've done. To make you suffer and hurt and feel the pinch before he'll even entertain an audience with you. And so you need to pray a certain number of prayers, or you need to do a certain number of good works, or you need to memorize a certain number of scriptures. You need to do penance. And then, perhaps, if you're lucky, God will receive you. That is the sort of God the religions of the world worship. A God who requires you to do all the things right if you're going to receive anything from his hand that's good. The God of Scripture, God of creation, the one true God, has in, the, in his nature and being loving kindness, grace, and mercy to all who seek him. And for those who don't seek him, sometimes he goes out of his way and seeks them out. Think about the story of Scripture. What did God do when Adam and Eve first sinned? Come down with fire and brimstone or seek them out? Where are you? Why are you hiding? Who told you about the drawing them out? He knew. He knows all the answers to these things. He's God. He's not surprised. And yet he's drawing them out of their hiding into his presence. He provides for them clothes, even at great sacrifice. Think of the God who, though he destroyed the face of the earth in a flood, yet saved humanity out of it. He could have started over. He could have said, I'm done with all of you, and I'm going to be at work instead in goldfish and see if I can make them live with righteousness and holiness. But he didn't. He sends prophet after prophet after prophet declaring the mercy and grace of God. The more I read Malachi, the more I am utterly astounded how God is pleading with Israel to come back to him because of who he is. And because of his great love for them. We read this and find more rules somehow. And even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came to seek and save the lost, came to give sight to the blind, life to the dead, who bore in his own body all of the times we haven't kept the rules to clear the way for us to come boldly to the Father, find renewal in Him. Who do you think the Lord really is? Is He a God who loves penance? And you found yourself exhausted with trying again and again, ever so much harder to earn his favor and to find his blessing? Or do you see him as he is, as he reveals himself, as he's always been? A God who loves 
repentance. Who is at work in repentance. Who is calling sinners back to himself. Return to me. And do you know what will happen when you do? You'll find that I return to you. For he's never been far off. He has never turned his face away from the people he loves. He calls them back again and again and again. And he promises that his nature is gracious. When you return to him, you will find forgiveness and mercy. The very forgiveness and mercy you so desperately need. And if you don't think you need repentance, you are in a dangerous place. This is where the people of Israel found themselves and where we so often find ourselves thinking that we're actually okay. We're pretty good. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. And their response isn't, Hallelujah. The response is how? How shall we return to you, God? We've been here. Where have you been? That's the sense of their response to him. And all too often, when we encounter difficulty and trouble, we, we shake our fist at God or we wonder, well, what are you doing? Where are you? And, and we forget how desperately we are the ones who need to repent and return to him. We think we're fine. We think we're okay. We do this all the time in all sorts of different ways. Not the least of which is in how we look at other people. We are experts at looking at other people and finding all of the things that are wrong with them. We can make lists of those things. We can critique those things. We can, we can demonstrate how those things are destructive, not just to the self, but to society. But when we turn the gaze to our own lives, suddenly we start to make excuses and rationalizations for the very same things. But the holy, righteous, perfect, good law of God Exposes us, exposes us all. This is what God says to them. How shall we return? Where have we been? And he's, you're, you're, you've been robbing me. And they're astounded. Lord, we've been offering these sacrifices to you. We came back. We've been doing all these things. We've been going through all these religious motions for you. How is it that we're robbing you? And he could have said all sorts of things. But he only has to say one. You have been robbing me of my tithes and contributions. See, what's been going on here is that God has restored Israel out of exile back to the promised land. They have, with some delays and much trouble, finally figured out a way to rebuild the temple. The priests have gone wayward, the people have gone wayward, and the whole structure of a worship in this restored Israel has been rotten to the core. 
And their, their tithes and their contributions were a clear evidence of this. Not the only evidence. We've already talked about several others. But it was a clear evidence. Because God, in his word, outlined several tithes and contributions required of his people. Tithe just is a word that means 10%. That's all that means. When we say the tithe, that's the 10%. Take 10% of whatever it is you're thinking of. But there were actually several tithes in the Old Testament. And if you, if you added it all up, there was this tithe, there was the, the, these seven-year, 50-year, all of these different things. You could come to about 30% of your income being wrapped up in contributions to the temple worship. This was important because it was through the temple worship that the priests were trained to go out to the people and teach them what it meant to love and follow the Lord. But those priests weren't allowed to have farmlands. They were devoted to just training up the people. And so the people needed to take care of them, to provide them food, to pay for the upkeep of the temple, to contribute to the needs of the poor in the land. So all of these tithes and contributions God commanded, commanded so that the people would demonstrate that their worship of this generous God who had given them the promised land, who had given them his word, who had given them all these blessings, that they weren't going to be selfish with those things, but they were going to overflow with that blessing to others. And it didn't take much for God to say, you've missed it. Jesus himself brings this up with the Pharisees. And he says, you come up with all of these intricate ways to tithe on your herb gardens. You figure out how to tithe your mint and dill and cumin. But then you also concoct and rationalize all these ways that you don't have to support your own parents. You break the clear command of God while saying you're obeying the clear command of God. Our hearts are deceptive and deceitful. And we will manufacture all kinds of ways to do what we want. What it all comes down to is worship. What is it that we worship? For if the people of Israel had worshipped God rightly, if they had seen His glory and His majesty and His grace and His blessing, if they believed that He was who He said He was, why would they hold anything back? They would rejoice that there was a a, a whole tribe dedicated to the priesthood. They would rejoice that there was a temple that they could come worship at. They would rejoice that there was this sacrificial system of worship that didn't keep sinners out of God's presence, but made it possible for them to enter in with boldness to fellowship with their God. What's money when you have fellowship with the God of the universe, the Lord of hosts? But what Israel demonstrated was that what they worshipped more than the Lord was their own peace and prosperity. Thirty percent's a lot. If God really loved me, He wouldn't ask for so much. Look, we're, we had a rough 
harvest this year. I, I can't, I, I really can't give this year. I, you know what? I have, I have hopes and dreams to, to pass on to my children more. So I need to save and hold and keep this back. And so God puts a curse on them. Not because he's cruel, not because he's evil, but because they haven't seen rightly what the real source of their blessing has been. They think it's because of their agricultural ingenuity. They think it's because of their hard work. They think it's because of their wisdom. They think it's because of whatever the reason is, they do not give God the credit for providing for them. They don't believe he actually will. And so they seek to provide for themselves. They've put themselves then in the place of God. They've put their wisdom in the place of God's wisdom. They've put their needs in place of God's holy purposes. God does not prosper or bless idolatry. This curse is a mercy. This curse is a kindness because it will demonstrate tangibly and really to these people that they have put their hope and trust in the wrong thing. Far worse for God to withdraw the knowledge of himself altogether. Far worse would it be for God to give them over to these things, to prosper them in their wickedness and their rebellion. Far worse would it be for God to let their idolatry pay benefits so that they give themselves over more and more and more to the idols of their heart. But this God who loves repentance sends a curse. It might prick the conscience of his people. They might return to him. Our hearts are Factories that constantly construct new idols. Who do you think the Lord really is? What have you put in that most holy place of worship? Do you believe that the Lord of hosts, the God of all the armies of heaven, is a God who loves his people? Is a God who calls his people out of their waywardness? A God who confronts their idolatries? A God who calls them to holiness, to righteousness for their own good? A God who abounds in grace. A God who gives strength to the weary. A God who helps those in need. Or are you functionally your own God? Pursuing evermore your own comfort, your own pleasure, your own ends, your own purposes, your own desires, using your own wisdom going your own way.
Has God sent that curse on you? Has He begun to show you how your idol is not able to help you? How there is no blessing to be found in these gods that cannot speak or act? Or has God given you over to it so completely and totally and fully that you don't even recognize your need of repentance? Hear the word of the prophet Malachi. Not only is our God a God who loves repentance, we are a people who are in constant need of it every single day. What would it look like for you to believe that and to live out the fruit of repentance? Sometimes I think We believe that repentance is this one-time thing that we did when we prayed the prayer or we walked the aisle or we got the baptism or we did the thing and that's the only time that we need to repent. But here, God challenges them. Repent. Here's what it would look like. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and put me to the test. Come back to me Follow after me, listen to my word, submit humbly to me, and see if it doesn't actually reveal who I really am. My great love and care for you. And it's interesting, all of these things that God mentions that he'll do. He'll open the windows of heaven. He'll he'll provide rain and sun. He'll rebuke the devourer. He'll hold back the locusts. He'll, he'll make the soil fruitful. He'll, he'll do all these things. It's, it's not unimportant that Israel was primarily an agrarian society because it, it, it reveals their utter and complete dependence for God to provide for them at every step of the way. They didn't just depend on God when they tilled the earth. They didn't just depend on God when they put the seed in the ground. They didn't just depend on God when they had to protect it from the devourer. They didn't just depend on God when they had the harvest. They didn't just depend on God when they processed it and put it up for storage. Every step along the way, they were in utter and complete dependence on the Lord. That points us to that need for constant repentance to be a daily fruit of our lives, we are always utterly dependent on Him. And what repentance is, is responding to God rightly because of who He is, following after Him and living in in His strength as He calls us to, as He deserves. Our third membership vow speaks to this. Do you promise in humble reliance on the Holy Spirit to live as becomes the follower of Christ? And there's so much there that you can, you can skip to the end and say, I'll live, I'll live for Jesus and all the things and miss the humble reliance on the Holy Spirit. We can't respond to God as he deserves. We can't keep all his commandments. We don't have the strength in us. We are utterly dependent on him for our day-to-day obedience. And so day-to-day, we ought to bear the fruit of repentance, always going back to him, 
always returning to him, seeking his strength and restoration and forgiveness. And he encourages this. Put me to the test. Elsewhere, God tells him, don't test the Lord your God. Right? When, when people put God to the test, not in faith. Prove to me, God, that you are who you say you are. This, this is, do what I say. Answer me. Listen to me. Put me to the test and find out if I'm not who I say I am. If I can't do what I've said I would do. And I will pour out every blessing on you that you can imagine. The psalmist says it elsewhere, taste and see the Lord is good. The Apostle Paul speaks of it in this way, that God has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. He has held nothing back. Unless we think that spiritual blessings are like less important than physical, material, worldly blessings, don't, don't miss the, the, the point of Scripture that that the things of this world are transient and will pass away, but the things of the Lord are forever. And the blessings that he gives us, the blessings that we need, the spiritual blessings aren't imaginary. They are Holy Spirit-powered blessings that have eternal value that will change you and shape you and will never pass away. God invites us to see if he's faithful. To make repentance a constant part of our lives day to day. Who do you think the Lord really is? Do you think that the Lord is Lord over your money, over your habits, over your relationships, over your commitments, over your doings? Over your goings, over your rest, over your play, over your work. And taste and see. Draw near to him. Have him draw near to you. See for yourself that this God who loves repentance, he won't abound to you with everything you need in Christ. Because while it's still today, we have an opportunity to repent and to know him as he is. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us moment by moment, day by day, to not grow hardened in our idolatry and sin. in humility, draw near to you. To seek your strength, to seek your loving kindness, to seek your forgiveness, to seek your love, to seek your renewal, to be a people who repent daily, constantly, that our whole lives would be one of repentance. That in so living, we would see that you are good, you are glorious, that you are who you say you are, and that you will do what you say you will do for the good of your people whom you love. Work this in us and through us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.